<laughs> no, I guess there's probably I nothing. Upload that last episode to the. Yeah, that would be good. I guess there's nothing more, like, philosophical than just embracing the day-to-day actions, including the slurping and smacking sounds of eating your lunch as a precursor for asking deep philosophical questions like, why do we care about people hearing sounds that are discomforting, like the sound of our eating? I'm sure there's sociological and scientific yeah. answers to that as well, but yeah, we'll oh, for sure. And and why it is that we choose to nourish ourselves now that we are now that we have the ability not to with the gainment of consciousness, self consciousness rather. Is uh, then then we would dive into eating disorders, which would be interesting, mm. like anorexia, for example, and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for today's meeting. I'm gonna read a passage from Conrad. Excited for that. Farouk, I saw you signed up for robotics. Yeah, yeah. I'm yes. uh, definitely. I don't know if I'll be uh, able to make it today because the core, it's from two to four, and I'm going to come back home. It'll be iffy. I'll let you. I don't think I will be able to make it. So. Okay. Um,. Since it was so late, I'm going to I'm going to be taking like notes on everything that we're going over and I'm going to try to send that out to the email list, but it was definitely very very last minute. I thought Waddington was going to send out an email um yesterday and he didn't. So then I sent one out this morning. All right. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be helpful to send out those notes. Yep. yep. I feel like Kaylee's not going to come now just because I made it at tw- like closer to two. She's going to be like, no, I need 45 minutes to mentally prepare for our core meeting. It's like, no, you can still come. God. Oh, if, she hear, if, you're watching, if you're listening to this podcast, Kaylee, come more and stay longer. That's all I have to say. Also, what, what was up with uh, Mr. Griffith's e- or Griffin or Griffith? Griffin, I think. Because are yeah, we on the calendar? Griffin. Griffin. Are we on the calendar or do I have to do that form? I, I sent the form, but because we didn't have a locked in time that we meet every week, um, I forgot exactly what I put. I think I put around 1230. This year it's interesting. Clubs are a lot more bureaucratic. Like, I don't know why, but there's a lot more administrative control over clubs, including things like when they meet and having it on a calendar. And um, it's very inorganic. Yeah. Which I don't know how many clubs are actually abiding by those rules. Cause we, 
the two clubs that are actually active right now, I have the Religion Global Culture Club, which I think will probably do more hands-on events and meet less frequently. But the two that meet frequently is this one and Debate Club. And it's usually not until Tuesday that I hear either from you or mm -hmm. Anaya and Eleni when it comes to Debate Club as to what time everyone can meet because people are just trying to shuffle their clubs around and the core events and everything else that happens on Wednesdays. Yeah. I think it's a bit of a a bit of a ask to have people know like more than 24 hours in advance when their club's going to be. Sure. For sure. So I, I would say just whenever you send out your basic invite, CC him. But if we have to change it, we have to change it. Yeah. It's like, is the, oh, so Anaya's here. So I guess Anaya, is debate club where you guys just actually debate in, in a meeting? Over so right now the whole like association is it's kind of a mess right now but hopefully we'll be able to do them later in the year but right now we're just doing it during the meetings like within ourselves we'll do competition oh, okay. later. yeah because like the comp i definitely want to be part of the you know the competition end of it so you can sign me up it's just i i can probably never come to the meetings when it's online just because of philosophy and literature so no, I understand. I'll add you to the classroom so that you, you at least get like updates and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Yeah. When was Literature and Improvement Club today? Was that earlier? It, yes, that was earlier. I believe it was, uh, let's take a look here. It was uh, 11. Yeah. I just realized that shifting this back to 12.50 has just turned this into like the waiting room time. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, tricky that way. I, I don't know that... Uh, like, I know it's only 10 minutes here or there, but moving it around makes it to where people end up showing up probably at the one time that's standard. Is there a time on Wednesdays that is pretty consistent for you? For me, I... Consistent. I mean, twelve ten is like seems like the most ideal time because that's when literature improvement for sure ends, and I'm done with all clubs. So right there, bang, philosophy. Yeah, from twelve ten to like one, to have fifty minutes of discussion. So today would be that exception because of yeah y'all schedules, but um, on a regular basis, I'd like to have it at twelve ten. So. Um, we might as well just start, right? Um, so I think I wanted us, us to start off with a passage from Joseph Conrad's uh, novella titled The Heart of Darkness. It's, um, there's a movie actually that's heavily inspired by it called Apocalypse Now, which is a brilliant movie that I recommend. Um, but the reason... I'm just going to read you the passage. I'm going to give you some context right now. So the main character's name is Marlo. He's on a ship um, traveling through the African, um, North African uh, river, the Congo river rather. And there's a character in this book. His name is Kurtz and he is an ivory trader. He's part of the ivory company. And what's happened is that he's gone rogue. He's selling ivory on his own. And after a certain period of time, 
he's become worshipped by the natives that live there. He's become like this godlike figure for the natives. And, he, you know, Marlowe has just stepped onto Mr. Kurt's property and he sees heads of people everywhere because Kurtz has become like this primitive warlord figure for these um, primitive men that are worshiping him. So Kurtz has just met, or Marlowe, the main character, has just met Kurtz. And this is the statement that he says in the novel or the novella itself. The thing was to know what he belonged to, he referring to Kurtz, how many powers of darkness claimed him for their own. That was a reflection that made you creepy all over. It was impossible. It was not good for one either, trying to imagine. He had taken a high seat amongst the devils of the land. I mean, literally. You can't understand. How could you? With solid pavement under your feet, surrounded by kind neighbors, ready to cheer you or to fall on you, stepping delicately between the butcher and the policeman in the holy terror of scandal in gallows and lunatic, lunatic asylums. How can you imagine what particular region of the first age a man's untrampled feet may take him into by the way of solitude? Utter solitude without a policeman by the way of silence, utter silence. When no warning voice of a kind neighbor can be heard or a whispering of a public opinion, these little things make all the greater difference. When they are gone, you must fall back on your own innate strength upon your own capacity for faithfulness. Of course, you may be too much of a fool to go wrong, too dull even to know you are being assaulted by the powers of darkness. I take it no fool ever made a bargain for, the soul, for his soul with the devil. The fool is too much of a fool, or the devil too much of a devil. I don't know which, or you may be such a thunderingly then it's only a standing place to say. All right. <laughs> okay. What do you can does anybody know what that means? Or should I probably provide more context for just so you know, Fruk, we're not laughing at you. We're laughing at the way the audio dragged out at certain points. Oh, so no. that you were like, <laughs> I, I swear, I've tried three different hotspots at this point. Like, I've exhausted all the data of my, of my dad's iPhone, my mom's iPhone, my brother's iPad, and my own internet never functions. So I, I'm doing the best I can at the moment. Ah. <laughs> uh. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Um, I wouldn't have laughed except for Anaya started laughing. If it wasn't for Anaya. <laughs> I put the book down. I was like, okay. If this is your type of humor, then all right. <laughs> um, so, well, first impressions, what do you guys think that means? Unless you think I should provide more context. I know nothing about that, the like passage that you read. So just based off of like, just you reading it, it sounded like it was very like, um, morality is within. It's not very like externally influenced. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. He says, well, 
I would add to that and say that what he's saying is that it's very easy to act as if you're moral when the policeman is by the corner and the butcher's over there and your neighbors are cheering you on. But when you're left in the woods by yourself with utter solitude, without someone, without the recognition of society, that is where your morality is tested. That is where you get to see, are you an evil being or a good one, right? And Kurtz, you know, left to his own in solitude with the utter powers of darkness, as Conrad calls it, um, he succumbs to evil, right? He becomes the god of evil. He kills people, in, uh, innocent people, just for the sake of pleasure, as, which is expounded on in the movie, not in the novella as much. Um, so what you're saying is true, that yes, morality is within, but it's never tested as long as you are living in a comfortable society where where you where you're constant where you're always you're where, where you're never hungry where the lights are always on when the water's always working it's easy to act as if you're moral right because you're never tested you're 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 always there's no occasion for you to be evil because what what will cause you to be evil you're never hungry you're never thirsty you're when those occasions arise that would be the test of your morality and i think that's what joseph conrad's saying well, I mean, I completely agree with that. I would say, however, that it's definitely still possible to be immoral when there's people around because a lot of times immoral or foolish actions are caused by something, which a lot of times is other annoying humans. So I definitely think that it, even though it's like a different possibility for being immoral, it, it's still there. Yeah. equally if not a little bit less than being by yourself but yeah i think that ties into like is morality subjective because if there's no one there and you just like do something like it doesn't affect anyone so is it really bad well i think that's actually a pretty good point um i think what conrad is saying is and I, i've had a conversation with mr marx about it because he actually he talked about this book a lot freshman year and human geo and it wasn't until sophomore year when I watched Apocalypse Now and I was like, hey, I got to actually read this. And then Mr. Marks and me had a long email chain discussing this. And Mr. Marks told, suggested that Conrad thinks that man is inherently evil so that when man is left away from all social constructs, from society itself, he will choose to do evil. So that is the basic, I think, the very vague claim Conrad's making. So it's like, don't you think you're a morally good person? Like we're sitting here, we're all like, hey, philosophy club, right? We're all moral beings. It's like, let's go to the Congo River for like a, like a week and let's see what happens without, you know, any social codes of any sort. Half starving. Naya's observation brings up an interesting point for me, though, whether or not the bulk of what we consider morality has to do primarily with the interactions of people within a community. So I can't lie if I'm by myself. <laughs> I can't steal if I'm by myself. Uh, I can't murder if I'm by myself. Because there's a lot of things that we consider morality that are completely determined by being around other people. In fact, I, I find it hard to imagine a long list of immoral actions that can be done. Now, 
technology not included, obviously, because technology can re you can be by yourself, but still be reconnected to the whole world. But let's, let's say you're off the grid completely, no people, no internet, no way to connect with society. What can you do that's wrong? What are the wrong deeds that you can do? That's yeah. But I think that's a good point actually. But in the novella, the, the case is that, you know, Kurtz is with people, right? He's with, that's what makes the, his moral actions, in, his actions immoral because he's killing these primitive, these indigenous people, right? And the reason why he's able to do it is because these indigenous people don't have any clue of what a white man society, um, which at that time we, would, we could call it a white man society's um, moral code is. So, and it's a brilliant commentary because we like to think like, hey, like at that time when Conrad wrote his novel, there was, there was um, colonization happening rampantly in Northern Africa and even Southern, in all of Africa really. And so there was this notion that the savage man is an immoral man, right? And that the white man will, you know, stamp his moral code on everybody and make everybody moral. But Conrad's like, come on folks, like, the savage is just as immoral as the white man and the white man is just as moral as the savage man because we all have the same capacity for evil. And Kurtz is like the undermining of that assumption. It's like, he's a perfectly well-respected white man from a very good high-end society, good reputation. You know, he's a great ivory trader. And one day he just, he, he goes rogue. He lives in the woods and a realization occurs to him that, hey, I can take, I can exploit these people. No one's watching me, right? And I can, I can become a, I can make a deal with the devil could possibly be a metaphor here, but not really actually. So then the question is not as much about community versus the individual as it is about power and consequences. Because he's not by himself, right? That's what I, that's what I think Anaya was pointing to that I was trying to tie into is question of what can be done that's immoral if you're by yourself but as you point out if we're going to use this um novel and its film adaption as a starting point then we're not talking about someone that's by themselves we're talking about someone who seems to have gained power but there's no consequence there's not people that have his means and his resources that can hold them in check so the native people in Africa that he has, we might say manipulated or misled, he somehow had resources and power that allowed him to rise to a place of kind of a quasi dictatorship, right? Yeah. He wouldn't have been able to do that back in Europe because there would have been checks and balances. So it's not about being around people. It's about, can I get away with it? Sure. The whole sure, yeah. kind of Lord of the Rings if you take the ring off, put the ring on and no one can see you going back to a um, metaphor that's based in Plato's writings about like basically the idea of if no one could stop you because no one could see you do certain things, mm-hmm. would you still do them? And that being the basis of understanding your morality. So it's not if you're by yourself, it's really more if anyone can stop you. Yeah, wait, yeah, so that's like really interesting. Oh, sorry, no, no, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. I don't want to be like the... Okay. No, the so that's super interesting. Uh, when you were talking through 
you said, um, I mean, just kind of like explaining it, but like it stuck out to me that like you would use that phrase that no one was watching him. So then does morality in question go back to, is there a higher being watching you? And are you, will you, basically karma, will anything happen to you? And what are the repercussions of acting moral or immoral? Whether or not there is subjective morality, it all depends on what you believe. I think part of what, like, like because it's so subjective, your morals are defined by like, what's the outcome? So like, if I lie, like some people might be like oh that's bad because god says it's bad some people was like no that doesn't hurt anyone so it's it's fine so like does it is it like the outcome like if you lie then that's like jesus is going to remember that or if you lie it's going to hurt some like what defines that does that make sense yeah so we're actually bordering the argument of objective versus subjective morality um the answer to that is, is that objective morality exists and subjective morality exists. So Anaya proceeds to turn off her camera. <laughs> did, I, did I glitch out? Is that what happened? Yeah. Oh my God, no. It's not, it's not like, doing so the glitching. Funny, it's not glitching as in the way that sometimes it like spaces. It's doing like a drag out thing where you like you can hear everything but you can hear it at a third speed <laughs> sorry i got like four Jeez. hours everything is funny to me right now okay, <laughs> <laughs> oh man this is a new problem to deal with but uh we'll deal with it right um okay <laughs> so the subjective and objective morality uh economy um I, I was saying that the, the right answer to that is that both exist at the same time. Um, and the moral relativists like Nietzsche would just say, no, no, objective morality, God is dead. Remember like that, like, let's just get rid of that already. Like there's no such thing. We can't all abide by one common morality because we are so different individually. Um, Nietzsche was wrong because actually what we know about the humans is that there is an embedded morality within us and within other animals as well. Um, there's a, there's research. Well, I'll just leave it up there for now and see what y'all think of that. Why do you say that they exist at the same time? Like subjective well, and objective? Well, yes. Um, well, so for one, an objective morality does exist, but we know that there's a degree of subjectivity per culture right you know a muslim doesn't think the same way as a hindu does right because there's a degree in the way to act in the world there's a very, very slight variation and that would depend on the cultural differences <laughs> god okay cultural differences and um <laughs> i don't i, I want to hear how this sounds like you know Oh, okay. So I would argue actually that just because people interpret things differently doesn't mean that there is subjective morality. I would argue that objective morality is the only thing that exists and people's interpretations are different. So then, okay, they may think that there's subjective morality, but they're actually wrong based on the objective morality. So then that would say that in my opinion or in my interpretation, 
objective morality is the only thing that exists and people are just interpreting it wrong. Um, so when we talk about objective morality, so we're talking about of like, like a code of ethics, like a code of like right or wrong that derives from what, that derives from where, right? Like um, what are we, what are, yeah. how are we defining this? Yeah, so that's a good point. Objective morality is something that all humans abide by, regardless of cultural, ethnicity, time, and place. So it's, some, it's a code that could be embedded in our nature, we could say. Or, yeah, I think, I think a good way to think of objective morality is something that's embedded in, uh, in the nature. So it doesn't have to, it, yes? Okay. Yeah? So, okay, but if that's focusing on the objective part of objective morality, what about the morality part? Because if you're saying the objective part is that all humans agree completely, that's objective. Well, the morality part would be right versus wrong. So wouldn't objective morality then be that all humans, th this is like the standard for being right, and some people interpret that wrongly, but there is an objective morality that exists, and then people twist it sometimes or don't understand it. Is you, that you possible could, to say? You could tell someone that they're interpreting it wrong, and they could tell you that they're interpreting it wrong. Who's to say what's the... There's no, there's no, there's no one objective set of rules that each person can use to determine. Like, like, you can't look at, like, someone's actions and then have every person, like, come to the same conclusion on it at the end of the day it all comes down to like situation and scenarios right and oh, so right. Our, our and, and there's no one person that can say oh this is i'm interpreting it and this is like objectively how we should interpret it and right mm -hmm. and so i agree with that and that's oh okay but that's where i i wonder if what if there is an objective morality and then people are saying like like, okay, where you were giving the example, like, okay, you could say one person's wrong, the other person might say that you're wrong. That is true, but that doesn't deny the existence of that objective morality, and who's to say that there is only one standard, and then people that are saying that the other is wrong just don't know what the objective morality is. I think you're it's, making... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, if it's, like, somehow, like, undefinable... How useful is that if we just can't? I don't. I don't understand the use of that. If if it if it exists somewhere out there and it's undefinable, like in this discussion, is that useful at all? Wouldn't that just make it subjective? Yeah, like exactly. Opinion, then it's just on the objective. If, if there's so some unreachable objective morality, but everybody has their own subjective morality for the sake of discussing like morality and like of like different like cultures and ideas and different groups what purpose does having that objective morality serve if we're just going to say it's unreachable and undefinable? Yeah, that's where I think we're having the problem is because we're saying, it, like, it doesn't really matter if there's objective or subjective morality because we're all unique. We're all going to interpret things differently based on our own life experiences and what we believe. So to say that there is an objective or subjective morality doesn't matter as much as saying that people will interpret whether if I say that I believe that an objective morality exists, people interpret that level of objective morality differently 
which makes it subjective to your own beliefs, but objective in the fact that that exists. So then the fact that it exists doesn't really matter as much as the way that people interpret it. Yeah, that's actually exactly what I was saying, that there is an objective morality, but culturally and, and time and place affect the sub how we subjectively interpret those moral that morality and how we, how we formulate it. Formulate it. Because different religions have different ways of looking at the same way to act in the world, right? Buddhism says something else about this objective morality. Christianity, Islam, um, paganism, right? They all have different ways of representing the same objective moral code. Um, Dr. Lepore, if you could maybe, because you are the religion teacher, add us, enlighten us rather. Well, I mean, I guess the only thing that's going through my mind is I, th I do think the objective subjective question pragmatically is not as relevant as we'd like to be. I think what um, Kaylee is saying that is important is if you least adhere to the plausibility or possibility of objective morality, we can, le we can agree that there's something to argue over. I, I, maybe I'm misunderstanding Kaylee, but she's saying that at least if humans say there's something out there that we should find, then you have the progress of looking for it. If you say that that's not there, there's no goal to find, then it sounds like Kaylee is a little nervous that that's gonna open up the door to kind of a, a nihilistic, well, if there's actually nothing we're looking for, then, you know, you like to kill people and I don't, let's, <laughs> who's to say? Um, but at the end of the day, Matthew's, questions I think still bring us around that even if there was and I think Kaylee agrees with this even if there was an objective morality something that's inherent in human nature some kind of higher divine being there's still interpretation right there's still the act of each individual trying to learn how to apply that to their lives and that is where the disagreements arise so Farouk you said uh, for example um, Hindus and Muslims I think both Hindus and Muslims would have a high value on life human life, animal life, maybe even, um, we might say life of sentient beings, but they're gonna differ wildly on how that's applied to say cattle. Like if you were to take Hindus in India, um, the cattle is a, is a cows are a mother figure. Um, but for Muslims, that's not a part of the Islamic worldview. And so there's great tensions over specifically, how do you respect life as relates to the place of the cow in the chain of sentient existence. I don't know how we settle those matters. That it is, it is a tricky, is a tricky question. I, I, so I think we'd have to come down to some point where we say, what is our, whether there's objective amount to be found or we're just gonna have to wrestle with it for a pure functional purpose. What is it that's the starting point for the discussion that we can say, here's the principles I think all of us have in and our best interest in the community. I think I'll tell you why I think objective and objective morality exists. Um, so there's this, there's this uh, psychoanalyst. Uh, he's not really a psychoanalyst. He's a genetic epistemologist named Jean Piaget, a French one. And he studied children playing marble games in Switzerland, which that seems fun to do. Um, and 
he did a very comprehensive meta-analysis of all these children um, playing this game. And what he noticed was that a morality springs up as the child grows up and rules inherently. Okay. Bye, Kaylee. And rules are, are created by the children so that the game is actually functional and effective. So this is very hard to explain because we're getting a game theory right now, um, which is very complicated. But Piaget, essentially what he said is that in order for a state of social beings to work, morality has to erupt. And that morality comes from an intrinsic, somewhere intrinsically deep within, deep within humans or else children who... Mm, I'm, I'm tackling some things that I, I don't think I'm competent enough to talk about. So I'm trying to wake, make my way through this. I think if what I hear in part, and you can keep your, your train of thought, just return to it whenever you feel like you uh, know where you want to go next. But in part, what I'm hearing you say is that something inherent arises in us and rises within us when we start constructing, again, we'll use communities or society as a word. And I think that's perfectly fair. Um, though, again, arguing the nature of that, that as it relates to morality is still kind of tricky to me because I think once we zoom out further, we have the question of, let's say we put two communities in conflict, right? We could say that both these communities have had agreements that have arisen. We might call those agreements morality for the sake of their cohesiveness where everybody that's a member in each group says, if we do these things, I don't kill you, I don't steal from you, um, I tell the truth together, that will be good for the whole. What happens though, when we rise to the next level and we have these two communities that both agree that that works for each other, then they have a conflict. And one of them is stronger than the other and could wipe the other one out in war, um, as an example. Um, what is then, the principle that arises that keeps two differing communities from doing what we might consider bad or evil to each other if they don't have a social contract that holds them in place. Well, other than the Cold War, mutual, <laughs> sure, mutual destruction. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, well, it's necessary for an effective society. Without it, society itself would break apart. So it's not only is it dumb to not have a moral code, it's also just, <laughs> not only is it dumb. Uh, man, I need to listen to the recording to see how it sounds like. <laughs> um, Basically, it, it was a major delay on your end. We're about six or seven seconds after I said what I said. Then you started kind of laughing, but it was super delayed. And then oh <laughs> to try to God. catch, to try to, for the audio to catch up, your response came. <laughs> like I couldn't understand it because <laughs> it was super fast. <laughs> you know, I, I might have to, okay, well, keep talking. I'm going to have to disconnect from my hotspot and see if my normal internet does better. Um, I think that we should do um, fundraisers for Philosophy Club. Yes. <laughs> So we can buy, just to buy Farouk, some kind of internet connectivity service. That would that'd be lovely. <laughs> Let me just uh, real quickly, y'all can continue the discussion. I will 
and okay. I always come back with water. <laughs> she needs to put something in front of her face as if she doesn't laugh too much. Ah, <laughs> uh, poor Farouk and his internet connection. He's frozen again. <laughs> I get a kick out of this because Farouk's making these, these audio files into a podcast, and I... I think this one would be hilarious to listen to. <laughs> uh, I don't even know what we were talking about. <laughs> uh, so like if like, so say we had two different communities with different like uh, subjective like codes of morality, right? Sure. Um, I think that both of them could agree that Right, both of them would uh, both of them would definitely agree that you know you'd have ideas against uh, harming each other within the community. But I, like on paper, both of them would agree that that'd be wrong to do to another community, right? Unless it's for self-preservation. I mean, still wrong unless completely necessary, and and that's just ideas of self-preservation, uh, which people just have intrinsically. But um. They, they can, they can, they, I'm sure both of them would be able to agree that doing that within the community is wrong. Why, what separates it from saying, okay, well, it's okay if it's outside of the community. Like what says, like, like what, what justifies war morally? I, I don't like, I think that the fact that um, we're able to have these rules in our own societies, but then just throw them out the window when it comes to conflicts with others. Um yeah, that's that's a great observation. I think it really does bring uh, war is a is a perfect case study for the questions of how far morality can be stretched, right? Like, what's the limitations of morality? What's the justification for breaking moral norms? You wouldn't traditionally go around um, feeling comfortable blowing up a building mm -hmm. in your hometown, but you would say, oh. Uh, this is a conflict is this level of destruction and the possible collateral damage is now justified because this is an act of war. Right. I think you're right. It brings up the question of what are, uh, and, and the various religions have, you know, wrestled with this for millennia, but what is the views Christian theological language, uh, just war theory. Is there a just war? Is there a war that, um, you can say that there are all the boxes to be checked that allow you to, do things that you would not otherwise do day to day in your community. Yeah, that's a interesting point. And I like how you were saying, like, because, you know, the, it's a war state, I can go do whatever I want now. It's like, it, it gives you a moral, moral justification for doing that. And, and, and that goes to the point that, you know, circumstances, right? Right now, you can act like a moral being, but when, when you walk outside and there's anarchism, like, right, like the whole world's on fire, people are smashing each other's windows, what will you do, right? Like people are robbing like your convenience stores and you're just standing in the middle looking around, like, will you join them? That's a, I guess that's a question. Yeah, I think that that's actually something I had a, a very important mentor in my life. We had a kind of a tense email correspondence a few weeks ago where I won't go into all the depth of it, but he said something to the extent of, I think we can both agree that rioting and looting is always wrong. 
And my response was something to the extent of, I've never been in a situation in my life where I felt so silenced that I thought the only avenue I had for being heard was actions like rioting and looting. And because I've never been in that place of desperation, I feel somewhat unqualified to speak to the absolute nature of the claim that there's never a good time for rioting and looting. Like it's always a wrong action. I don't think that was received very well, but I stand by that. For example, I think that it, it's perfectly <clears throat> fine for me to say, I don't believe in um, killing people. Like I'm not gonna say I'm a full-blown pacifist, but I would say in general, I would try to be very happy if I lived my whole life without ever killing anybody. Okay. That's great as a moral principle. If I'm walking downtown, someone tries to attack me and my wife, it gets into a, a tense fight where <laughs> the odds of me winning are already pretty poor, if you know me. But let's say I had a shot at it, um, and it just appears that this person will not back down. I can't injure them and stop them, and I have a, to do whatever it takes with the most force possible, which might mean killing that person. Um, that situation, suddenly my theoretical is kind of like the whole trolley problem. The trolley problem is great until you're like, if you would actually be in the middle of the trolley problem, <laughs> like they did that scene in the good place where it's like, okay, let's actually do this. We need to get in the trolley and um, you have to make the decision on the moment. That's where it, the whole line between moral theory and your gut reactions or intuitions or instincts. I don't know if when you're not being challenged, you're ideals is what your morality is and then we should just not count what's happening in the heat of the moment or if the heat of the moment really reveals what your morality is in spite of what you might put in a term paper I, I, yeah oh sorry no go ahead go ahead that's why i think like subject morality is like like it's a difficult concept because yeah in theory like it works great in a vacuum but you go in the real world and like it's hard to narrow down all of human judgment and values to just a couple rules that you should live by. Wait, so are you critiquing subjective morality? Because that just sounded like a, a critique. Objective, objective. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, like we could even go back to what Kaylee brought up with the idea of some kind of objective morality, and I'll just I'll take um, I'll take the next step and go into the topic of established religion, let's talk about the concept of, let's imagine, let's just imagine uh, where a lot of people want to go to establish objective morality, which is the concept of what we call divine revelation, that there's a higher being that just tells us. Well, the funny thing about that, it's still tr troublesome to me. It's like, let's say the 10 commandments in Judaism were right. Okay. Let's just say they're right. Let's say that God really did write them on stone tablets and gave them to Moses and Moses brings them to the people. The funny thing is we still would have <laughs> 3,000 plus years of interpretation where yeah. no one can agree on how to apply them. So even in the moment we have divine revelation where some kind of higher being says, humans, this is precisely what I'm asking from you. You're still gonna have generations of people going, what did that being mean when they said, do not kill? You know what I mean? Like, or do not murder. That It's still gonna be subjective. Like you could have a God speak and you still will have the question of subjectivity. I had That's what's tr and tricky. I had a religion teacher tell me like in terms of do not kill if you're like mean to somebody else that counts as killing them. So like just their interpretations like completely like it's so different. Which I, which I think they are probably um, 
in my opinion, misinterpreting a line from Jesus in the Gospels, where Jesus basically says, I'm paraphrasing, but you think that, you you know, you there's the commandment not to kill, and uh, you think you're doing good, but you hate your neighbor in your heart, it's as if you killed them. And I don't think what Jesus is saying there, some people have interpreted as saying, hey, I the guy next door that <laughs> is always uh, playing his music till 11.30 p.m., I hate that guy. You know what? If I went over and killed him, it's the same thing. I might as well just kill him. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. But, uh, I do think what, what Jesus in his context was saying is you who think, oh, I'm a good person because at least I haven't killed that guy. Be careful because the hate in your heart is still the seeds to the sort of thing that leads to murder. I think that's what Jesus meant. And I think your teacher probably oversimplified what Jesus was trying to say. But either way, it's still, even <laughs> even if you were to go full-blown, the hate in my heart is murder, um, you still have people asking, well, what types of negative feelings are really hate? And what are pain and suffering? You know what I mean? Like, people are still going to ask questions of interpretation. That's where it gets tricky. Well, uh, here, I'll lay one more piece of evidence that I've found during my research on this. Um, and this is something that I can talk about because, well, I, unlike Piaget, who is like, I'm still trying to grapple with his ideas. They're, they're immense. Anyways, so there's this neuroscientist by the name of Yak Penksop. Um, he's a Russian. They're all Russians for some reason. Um, <laughs> but, um, he, he did on rough tumble play in rats. Okay. And I cut out <laughs> Oh God, this is a struggle. Yeah, I might have to say this for next time then. Um, and, you, know, you know, we should have a philosophical discussion on the inequity of internet connectivity. In a, in a <laughs> I, I'll just say the, the first day of um, our Zoom school year, my internet was doing this as well. And we called my uh, cable provider, Spectrum, love them. Mm -hmm. not love them. but they did they were very helpful apparently your internet ha I, I don't know what I'm saying here I'm just paraphrasing what I was told but the internet has channels that it can connect on and sometimes if there's lots of routers on a channel it will slow down your speed so it's not that you don't have the right hardware it's just that you might be on the wrong frequency or something to that extent so I don't know have your parents calls yeah <laughs> yeah I have spectrum too so we might have to call them then so yeah and it was as soon as like the borders arrived over here that all of a sudden my internet that had been fine all summer went just ground to a halt the first day that everyone was within a similar space. And so they put us on a different channel. And there's a little speed gauge test that happens on your computer. It's cool. That's not objective, the command. It's not an objective morality that you have. It's totally subjective. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. It seems like we just this internet thing keeps derailing. I don't even know what we're talking about again. I, I promise I'll fi get it fixed. I will. And uh, we will have blazing philosophical conversations starting next week. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'll try to say what I was trying to say. If it crashes, and no, I'm just kill it there. I'm just I glitched. So, um this is this is unbearable um 
<laughs> it's like every time you try to get into an extended statement, like you can have your, if you have small statements, it's fine, but then you start to go into something with a little more detail. And they, <laughs> the internet sensor does not like my deep thoughts. It's like, stay shallow, stay shallow. Um, I guess uh, I got to, I got to go to the core meeting as well. So uh, we'll end here. I'll fix my internet and we'll continue morality next week. How does that sound? I feel subjective about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. See you. See you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.